Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Al Horner. And I'm Elena Lezik. On the show this week, seven entries in, those darn missions are still proving impossible in Dead Reckoning Part 1. Squaring the Circle tells the story of the creative geniuses behind some of the most iconic album art of all time, and we spoke to its director, Anton Corbin. And on the film club, it's Tom Cruise versus Paul Newman in The Color of Money. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, welcome, welcome. Elena, it's lovely to have you back. What Thank have you, you been up to of late? I've actually been extremely busy going to various film festivals for work and also for pleasure. I was just in Bologna for Il Cinema Retrovato, which is basically a, a festival that just shows old movies on print, most of them, and then restorations, but mostly it's the idea is that they they just sort of unearth like old films that you know you can't really see anywhere else because the it's like a sort of unique opportunity to see a very rare print that they worked for years trying to find and it's some some amazing uh, authors and filmmakers that you might never have heard of that suddenly all these people who meet in Bologna rediscover together and they can start a whole new like appreciation of them. And this year, one of the big focus was Ruben Mamoulian, uh, an amazing director who made lots of great films in America, um, very, very horny films, very funny films uh, across all genres. And yeah, it was wonderful. It was so intense. I was like there for like a week and every day you watch five, four or five movies. You don't want to miss a film because you, you might never ever get a chance to see it again uh, that, that sounds incredible i mean like, what else was going on there i'm fascinated by this i'm kind of booking my tickets for next year already oh man that's the problem i keep telling everyone about it and then it's going to be too huge and there's going to be too many people and it's not going to be cool anymore well no, it will be cool it, it cannot not be cool but it's just there's already so many people i think this year they had about like 1,500 more people than last year or something. It's like growing so, so fast. The other thing in Bologna, yeah, is the food. I think Bologna is supposed to be the best city in Italy for food. And so in between films, you're just eating quite an inexpensive, absolutely delicious pasta, the best pasta you've ever had in your life. So that's another thing going for it. And yeah, it's just incredible. This is one of the things that puts me off can because I actually controversially think that the food in the south of France is absolutely terrible. And I only really want to go to places where I'm going to be able to eat. And Al, what about you? Do you want to do yourself a little intro? Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, I do. That sounds great. So I'm Al. I am a writer who has worked for Empire Magazine and The Guardian and GQ and all sorts of other places. Little White Lies, of course. How am I forgetting that one? 
And uh, yeah, I'm the creator of Script Apart, which is a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Every week we have a famous filmmaker come on the show and revisit their first draft of what became a beloved movie. So um, I haven't done anything as exciting as late uh, as kind of go to Bologna. I'm very jealous, but um, I have been busy with that. That has been, we're back with our fourth season and we've had on um, David Kep, who wrote Jurassic Park. We've had on David Chase, who wrote The Sopranos. It's not all David's this season, I promise. Um, yeah, we uh, we just recorded with Christopher McQuarrie talking about a certain Mission Impossible movie that uh, is going to be the subject of this podcast as well. So yeah, it's been busy. But yeah, I haven't had many, haven't had good food. I'm, I'm really jealous about, yeah, all this pasta talk. Oh man, there's so much pasta. <laughs> just pasta, pizza, pasta, pizza, pizza, pasta. Well, if I can derail this conversation, this entire podcast and make it a food podcast for 10 <laughs> seconds. I did go to Bologna once for, for a profile I was writing and I had, I basically had the best food weekend of my entire life. Mm. Like I just went into like a random place thinking, yep. well, this isn't, you know, I've, I'm literally picking the first place I've seen here. This isn't going to be good, but it's like 10 o'clock at night and I've just landed. I need to eat. And I like had just the single greatest pasta I'd ever had in my entire life. So yeah. yeah wow. What a place. Yeah. That was the thing for me is like, if every time I went to a recommended restaurant, that was kind of like a big name it was way less good than the random restaurant that was right down from my airbnb so i think that's like the tip for anyone listening who wants to go to bologna just go to any restaurant don't go to like the big ones exactly it's so much better if you've just joined us this podcast is now called truth and tortellini (laughs) and it's a pasta podcast but also please don't go to bologna because we want to be able to get affordable accommodation and get into these places Go, go in like february i'm sure it's great Go, go in any other month of the year, not June. But uh, Al, I'm curious, like now, you know, making Script Apart, which is an excellent podcast, and the writer's strike, is that like not kind of making things very difficult? <laughs> yeah, the combination of um, being a writer myself and kind of dabbling in that world as, as a screenwriter, the combination of my own work being affected, and also a lot of our guests kind of opting to not do interviews it definitely has made this this season interesting, I think is the word. But um, yeah, it, it, we've been working around it. And we luckily, like, we had this kind of crazy... When, when it became apparent that the writer's strike was looming and the studios weren't going to get their act together, we kind of banked a whole ton of them. I, like, went on a massive spree kind of chatting to so many screenwriters in advance of the strike happening. So we got stuff coming. We got stuff in the bank. It's all okay. And uh, yeah, we're just <laughs> playing it by ear a little bit. I mean, I like your optimism, but is it okay? Because like SAG just announced they're striking, no interviews, no red carpets. I think they put the Oppenheimer premiere one hour earlier, so it's going to be just before the cutoff, and they're going to walk the red carpet, and then it's it's done for a bit. Yeah, that's quite a strange thing. I mean, not to kind of get too bogged down in this, but it really is between the kind of SAG strike and the WGA strike. This really is such an interesting and vital kind of inflection point for the entire industry. And um, it seems like we're at a bit of a crossroads and in one direction, one path to, that could that we could end up going down is a much healthier way of creatives in the entire industry all working and being kind of remunerated for their work properly uh, and not replaced by AI. The other path is just not where it's just the scary kind of like wooded forest from some sort of horror movie that you don't want to go down. That that kind of doesn't even really bear thinking about. So yeah, I hope it all kind of works out and I hope it works out swiftly and fairly. It is kind of amazing to watch all these people actually protesting, actually sticking together, actually, you know, putting their life 
you know, not that well, in a way, their life, you know, but also just, you know, their livelihood on the line. And it was horrible to read that basically the tactic of the people who, you know, who refuse to listen to their demands is to just have them strike for ages so that they lose everything they have and have no money and lose all their savings and their houses and everything. And the fact that despite this, like people seem to still be willing to to do it. I think it's nice because it also shows the, the writers understand their own value. And I've not yet, you know, absorbed this like ambient uh, mood that's like, oh, well, writers, you know, they're just, you know, we don't really, we don't really need them. They're not really that valuable. They're just, you know, moaning all the time and complaining. And they haven't, they haven't absorbed that yet. They're like, no, you need us. You couldn't make all these films and shows without us and we're going to defend ourselves. I think that's just so nice to see. So wonderful, inspiring. I do love the sort of studio double think of like, so basically the, the kind of studios are saying like, these writers, they have plenty, but also we reckon if we don't give in to their demands for three months, they'll all lose their homes. <laughs> so that's our tactic. Like, which is it? You know, yeah. it, the, 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 it's crazy. Yeah. Not not to be like too despairing or go to kind of full conspiracy theory nut, but I actually think people don't appreciate what a big deal this is. I mean, I've kind of gone, a, I've done a big kind of look into it. And like the first time that the writers went on strike in like 1983, that's how we get Fox News. And the second time it happened in 2007, that's what keeps Donald Trump on the air until he starts his election campaign. So there is possibly a much nicer universe out there when none of these things happened and like we're all just living in some beautiful utopia and waiting for a great number of new films to come out yeah i mean i know i would say this i'm going to just disclaimer all of this i'm a writer so of course i would say this but my bias opinion is Hollywood has historically always devalued the work of writers i mean there's there's an old 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 joke that kind of dates back as far as Hollywood itself, where I'm kind of paraphrasing, I'm going to butcher it, but the joke is kind of like, so-and-so actress is so stupid, she slept with the writer of a movie thinking it would get her ahead instead of the director. Sexist joke and not funny, but like that is something, that is a, a punchline that's existed in the industry forever. The implication being that actresses have to kind of be sexually active with with to, to kind of get the roles they want, which is terrible in itself. The other kind of in, horrible implication of that is that the writers have no power and the, you'd be stupid to kind of think that the writers have any power. And yeah, I just th- I kind of came across that in some archive footage when, um, yeah, sort of doing a research project earlier this week. And it really stuck with me because I think with SAG uh, striking and the writers already on strike, it kind of spoke to the ways in which both of those groups are kind of looked down upon by the relevant powers and kind of always have been. It's kind of baked into Hollywood. So yeah, bad things happen when writers and actors go on strike let's kind of resolve this quickly god and in the meantime when we don't have as many things coming down uh towards us because no films are going to be being made for a while elena anything kind of old school that we can kind of amuse ourselves with whilst the world burns well yeah actually um it's quite interesting because um just as all this is happening um i've with the prince charles cinema in london i've uh, sort of programmed a mini retrospective of the films of peter weir who's an amazing australian director who i feel is very underappreciated in the sense that he has made so many films that people love but people don't realize he's made all of them they don't realize it's like the same guy that they love them it's the same person who did Master and commander uh that everybody loves now on the internet but it's crazy about that movie people like to say it's a dad movie but i think it's just a movie for people who like good movies i really don't like this whole like 
Oh, it's a dad movie thing. Oh, anyway, Mustang Commander, Witness, which is an amazing movie that those people oh, Witness uh, is so have good. loved. Yeah, it's such a crazy film. I hear so many people tell me about Witness that it's a film that they've been watching, you know, since they were a kid, or they watch it every Christmas. Like they have a real connection to it, but they don't realize it's the same director as The Truman Show or Dead Poets Society or um, Picnic at Hanging Rock. And yeah, and so I'm just really happy that with uh, my magazine, Animus Magazine, uh, I've been able to do this mini retrospective at the Prince Charles. It starts on the 31st of July with Picnic at Hanging Rock. And it ends in December with Master and Commander, so it's chronological. And yeah, I mean, as if there are no new movies to watch, you can still watch those, <laughs> uh, which are kind of also some of the best movies ever made. And I genuinely think some of the best movies ever written. Like if you watch uh, Witness, if you watch uh, Master and Commander, it's just insane. It's just incredible how perfect they are. Fearless is another one that I think is really underrated. Another perfect movie that does things with structure and emotion and the relation between the viewer and the characters and what's going on. They're so sophisticated and incredible and emotional and overwhelming. And actually, I don't know if you guys saw this uh, Wes Anderson video where he was in a sort of, like not like the not the Criterion Closet, but something like this. I think it was for um, Combini in France. And he pointed out Witness uh, as a film that he loves as a perfect movie. And he says this amazing anecdote where he uh, met the editor of the film and the editor told him that editing Witness was the easiest job in the world because basically, you know, they would shoot the film and he would just assemble it roughly every day getting the footage and then the final edit of the film was basically the same thing there was no editing to do because the film was so brilliantly written so brilliantly put together already that he had like a minimal amount of work to do as an editor and so I think that's just yeah that's just one little detail about Peter Weir's talent as a filmmaker so yeah I hope that you know once this strike ends people can have just watched all those films and like learned a few things and be even better writers themselves and you know there are things to learn from those movies I think um that are just so precious and they're right there but they're just not very as well known as they should be yeah now i i will i will be there for witness but that has just reminded me of my kind of white whale thing that i want to write one day which is to interview the editor behind the film the snowman which is one of the worst films ever made because apparently he just got all of this footage and was just like guys we don't have it (laughs) and you can really tell Yes, uh, that that was like painfully vis- uh, visible watching the film. You would just feel bad for the editor. Be like, oh god, they had a pretty tough job to do. But yeah, we should move on to another guy who has a very tough job on his hand, Mister Ethan Hunt. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. We receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Ethan Hunt and his IMF team must track down a terrifying new weapon that threatens humanity before it falls into the wrong hands. With the fate of the world at stake and dark forces from Ethan's past closing in, a deadly race around the globe begins. That does feel like that could be the synopsis for, like, most of these films, to be fair. Al, are you a fan of, like, the Mission Impossible franchise? Oh, I'm such a fan. I actually um, hadn't seen a Mission movie until I went in blind to Fallout. Um, a couple of years ago, Fallout being the sixth film in this franchise. And I just had the best time watching that film with absolutely zero context for what was going on. And yeah, since then, I've gone back and watched everything else. 
multiple times in fact meaning that um yeah my my anticipation for this film was kind of through the roof and it did not disappoint in the slightest we're back baby we're so back (laughs) it was so great i love this yeah tom cruise saving cinema one insane stunt at a time i mean this is the first one though without jj abrams i believe in any capacity like do you kind of notice his absence at all well, no, because Macquarie, Christopher Macquarie, the film's director, I think he came on in some sort of script capacity. He, he didn't write it, but he did a pass at the script, I think on Ghost Protocol. And since then, this is his third film as the director. He and Tom Cruise have become this kind of director star symbiosis who who kind of work almost exclusively with one another. And they've been very much at the forefront of this franchise ever since kind of J.J. did did the third film in the franchise i think it was the third so yeah jj's not really had much of a stamp on this franchise compared to McHugh and tom for a good while and this feels very much a continuation of the kind of boundaries they've been pushing with with this franchise for these last couple of films the the kind of very tight-knit relationship that the two of them have together yeah it, it's it's very much like the work of two people a star and his director with the utmost trust in each other and the sort of this kind of cinematic shorthand that yeah just results in these quite incredible cinematic feats like there are things in this film that just haven't been attempted before in cinema but um i think they land with a kind of exaggerated gravity with with an even greater punch i suppose because we're in an era of cinema now where some of the kind of like tangible practical things being attempted in this film that they these two Cruz and Macquarie have very much made their calling card we've moved away from as an industry like there are other films I'm not going to name them but because I quite like them but you know there there are other films even this summer that involve similar set pieces to some of the set pieces in in Dead Reckoning Part 1 but they just don't land with quite the same kind of visceral feel because it's green screen or it's you know there's a there's a they lean on practical on VFX in a way that like just doesn't replicate the feeling of watching a mission movie where the kind of USP of these films at this point is we're doing everything we're throwing Tom Cruise out of an airplane we're you know we're fighting on top of trains that kind of thing so um yeah, I, I didn't miss JJ at all. I, I actually didn't know he was still involved in any capacity. As I, I sort of was vaguely aware, Bad Robot was still producing. But um, yeah, this is this is not a film that kind of where any absence of any any kind of past creator is felt. It's very much like a continuation of McHugh and Cruz doing their thing and doing it so well. It's funny that you kind of say all the names of these films and it's just, I have no ability to retain what the name is versus the number. <laughs> like Ghost <laughs> Protocol, Dead Reckoning. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that these are kind of the finest of the action franchises, but that might be damning with faint praise after some of the crap I've seen this year. <laughs> Lena, what about you? Did you enjoy Tom Cruise coming back to save the day? I did. And I think it's funny what you were saying about how the, you know, the plot... Uh, that you read could be any of them. I think that's kind of key to what makes this franchise great is that they haven't deviated from that. You know, it's still, at the end of the day, every film is just, oh, there's a new 
weapon or there's a new supervillain who wants to destroy the universe <laughs> and Ethan Hunt has to hunt him down literally and I like that there's this uh, level of like playfulness in the oldest films where it's still sort of this kind of like cat and mouse thing and like really you know quite a conventional type of story of just like oh no we have to stop the villain and the film especially this film I think even more than Fallout I think is very much in tune with the playfulness of this and the sort of like exaggerated dimension that it's not really I mean it's not really realistic like let's be honest it's not a realistic scenario where there's the, the big problem facing the world is one guy with one plan you know sadly that is not the truth that would be much easier to handle and I like that in this movie it was so much more funny I thought I, I, I still think for me I was a slightly a, a very very tiny bit disappointed but not even it's, I think disappointed is wrong I think it's more like surprise I was like oh okay they're doing this because uh, I thought Fallout for me was such a perfect film, like in every way, every element of it was in full, fully cohesive with everything else. I'm talking in terms of like the cinematography being in line with the themes, uh, the action scenes also being about characters. And it was never, you never had the sense that anything could really be taken apart from anything else and still be as great alone. It was all like everything just built up on top of each other in this beautiful way, which I obviously has that to do with the writing shout out to writers again um <laughs> and i thought that in this film it was kind of more like a roller coaster ride where you're like oh this happens and then you forget what just happened because the next thing happens and it's fun but it doesn't does it it doesn't make as much coherent i mean it does all make sense but it's like it's it's harder to like sort of keep everything in your head i think it was less elegantly put together in a way and i'm sure covid probably had to do with this because we obviously shot it during covid but in a way i thought that kind of made it more it had a more like loose, uh, let's just see what happens quality that I thought was quite exciting. But I know some people didn't like that at all. <laughs> but I thought it was quite fun, especially since, you know, Tom Cruise is a quite uh, of a certain age now. I mean, he looks incredible. Like, I don't know what he's doing. I don't really want to know what he's doing. Um, he's, you know, he's an amazing actor. I, I would watch him do like literally anything else. I, it's very problematic, but I do love him so much as a performer. And in this film, I thought there was a lot about actually quite a lot about this about the fact that he's aging and a lot about the fact that he maybe shouldn't take himself so seriously anymore and there was actually one scene that I, I almost got like started crying which is not something that happens in Mission Impossible for me uh, ever <laughs> uh, but it was it had nothing to do with the story it was just there was one scene where Tom Cruise had to do a bit of acting that was different from the acting he usually, usually does in Mission Impossible where he had to look a bit embarrassed and like do some sort of comedy I don't want to say too much what the scene is because I don't want to spoil and literally I hadn't seen him do this in so long in a context where he wasn't also like running and or like or like trying to like beat up some guy and you know like there's the scene in Fallout where there's a fight in the toilet that's really funny as well and he's doing this but also like you know fighting and in this scene he was not fighting he was not doing anything he was just being there and being funny I think he's like trying to drive a car and I, was, I just was like oh my god that's Tom Cruise being a normal person and like being a bit embarrassed and being like doing some acting on this smaller scale and that's something I haven't seen in the Mission Impossible films in a while. And I was so happy that they actually did this. I think that that may, that may be a biggest biggest stunt for Tom Cruise to do than, you know, driving off a cliff on a motorcycle. Um, and yeah, and I, so I thought there were like little things like this that were just so, as you say, like pushing the boundaries of what this franchise is all the time. Like it never stays the same, uh, at least not since Macquarie took over. I, I had a great time. I don't know. There are loads of haters out there. <laughs> Not haters, that sounds bad, but like there's a people really disappointed and I don't get it. I can see why a little bit because it's less serious and less perfectly made. 
but I still really liked it. The only thing, okay, if I can say one thing that I really didn't like about the movie, is I thought it looked so ugly. Visually, the lighting was so terrible and I don't know what happened. I want to know what happened. Something happened because Fallout looks so beautiful. And this film, I thought, was so badly lit and everybody, even if it obviously wasn't green screen, it looked like bad green screen, people just standing in a room. And I don't know what happened and I want to know. And I think maybe it's COVID protocols, something like this, but I was so shocked. But that's, you know, that's such a tiny, that's kind of a tiny detail in a film like this. So I still had a good yeah. time. I so that was a very correct, long answer, but, but you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do. I'm fascinated by Tom Cruise. Um, I kind of have a theory that like after that kind of Oprah couch jumping incident, he sort of shut himself down. Like he didn't want to show vulnerability afterwards. So he's kind of kind of stuck to, you know, we're not getting the sort of eyes wide shut and magnolia sort of things where he's just like going for it in the same way. But mm. I like it when he runs. Like, so I'm not complaining too much. Yeah. It's always nice to see him run. I mean, Al, at this point in the franchise, we've kind of picked up like this big motley crew of characters in the kind of supporting roles. I mean, did any of them kind of particularly stand out for you? Yeah, what's interesting, the um, there is a theme in this film of AI. That is a topic that this film kind of grapples with, and it's no secret that the kind of antagonist, in a way, in this movie is a form of artificial intelligence that obviously has like a timeliness to it. There's a kind of cool, interesting duality that the film plays with that kind of works really nicely, given that we're seven films in and we have kind of got to know some of these supporting characters quite well. The film kind of has as like the opposite of this cold, ruthless, efficient artificial intelligence. It, like Ethan's journey in the film kind of really leans into human connection and the friendships at the heart of the IMF in ways that we haven't really seen before. So characters like Benji, uh, played by Simon Pegg, who, you know, they've had kind of lovely little character moments in the past, but I I think in this film, like, they are explicitly saying, they are having conversations about, like, how much their friendships matter to each other, and that has not really been a fixture so much of of this series in the past. In this movie, as, like this really interesting contrast to the AI-ness of it all. It's really kind of, like, pronounced. And, um, yeah, as a result, you get some really nice, like, moments of levity with some of these supporting characters. You get some really nice kind of dynamics where Ethan is confronting how he feels about the people who are his, like, colleagues in Saving the World. And also, like, what it would feel like if anything was to happen to any of these people who are increasingly put in harm's way by their involvement with him and their involvement in the IMF. So, yeah, I th- actually thought this this film, partly, I think, because they've decided to split it into two movies. They This is part one, there is part two coming. I'm not sure actually when, when its release date is scheduled, but uh, yeah, part two is coming. Because of that kind of, like, bigger canvas that the story is being told on this time, there's a bit more kind of room for, for kind of those supporting characters and their backstories and their relationships to Ethan to be explored. So yeah, I actually thought this was one of the most successful movies in terms of giving a little bit of shine to these people who um, have previously been like, not, I mean, it's, it's kind of reductive to call them like anonymous helpers or the comic relief, but they have, they haven't had, because these movies fly by at like 300 miles per hour there hasn't always been the room to kind of lean into who they are as characters i mean you mentioned that this is part one i mean one of the sort of haters is elena <laughs> um, I've, I've seen um I, you know i'm not a hater i'm saying that there are, i have seen criticisms that this is this is half a movie and like how can we assess it as a movie until we get 
the second half. I mean, do you think that's fair? Well, I personally think of all the kind of part ones that we've had recently, and we've had Dune, we've had Spider-Verse, a lot of these films, they have their detractors who kind of have felt like it stops halfway through, like it, it kind of abruptly reaches an end. There is such a climax to this movie, the final spectacle of the entire movie is so giant that like I think it, I think it's easier to kind of be at peace with this being part one of, of two movies. The, the there's kind of a fun joke to it, and I, again, I don't think this is a spoiler because it's been all over the marketing material. There there is there is a train sequence in this movie that acts as so many of these part one movies they end on a cliffhanger. There is a literal cliffhanger to this <laughs> this movie that's quite fun and um, quite knowing. So uh, yeah, it's it's I, I I felt like it it kind of navigated that a bit better than some other movies that have been split split into two. But that that was just my take. I don't know how you guys felt. No, I agree. I I also because especially with the Spider Verse film, I was kind of like really I quite quite annoyed actually. I was I really felt like come on, you've 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 shown us a lot of stuff but this is not a story like this literally does not work as an arc for a film whereas in this film i i I do think it actually does kind of work as an arc for a film and yeah and this there's enough to like sustain the entire film anyway like there's all these incredible action scenes and all these like you know just stuff that happens it's it's not you, you don't feel like you're just waiting for the film to start for like half the film like it starts pretty you know pretty immediately so yeah for for me I, I really didn't have that feeling of frustration it, it was more like the usual old school way that you know a, a film in the franchise ends and you can't wait for the next one like that's that's how it's, it's supposed to be I mean that's how it usually is that's how it was uh back in the day I don't know I don't watch that many franchise films now but usually it ends and you're like oh well I can't wait to see the next one but that's it I wasn't like frustrated that I didn't know the ending I thought it was quite well done it's it's interesting because I do feel like the way they kind of tell us more and more about the villain, it's so, so slow. Like the we only learn about him so slowly that I can see why someone would be frustrated about this. But for me, I, I didn't mind it at all. I thought it was quite um, quite exciting. And I thought the actor who plays him, um, Esai Morales, I thought was quite good at uh, conveying some, so, some, some mystery. Like you, you, you want to find out more about him. Um, but even if you don't know about him, he's already scary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I had an excellent time at the movies. And I would say, kind of looking back on this franchise, like that there is a remarkably strong set of villains, which I think has not been the case for a lot of these other franchises. I mean, yeah, maybe I think something died inside of me during Thor Love and Thunder, and I just haven't really been able to come back from the brink. <laughs> Al, do you want to get some scores on this um, in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Yeah, you can just make them all five. Let's just go. Let's, I'm, I'm throwing it all out there. Wow. I mean, don't know that Cruz himself would give him that. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. I needed this movie. You know, just sometimes you need a particular movie. I think as soon as this movie kind of came back into production during COVID, while we were sort of all still kind of mired in various lockdowns and kind of anxiety around covid watching kind of like the news that it was back and seeing them bit by bit piece it together it did give me a sense that like life will return someday and uh yeah that kind of added slight weird kind of historical emotional context to it makes me just have an even greater gratitude to 
you know cruising macquarie and everyone else that they pulled this thing off i i just have like a lot of love for this movie i had a great time i don't think it's as good as fallout but fallout is beyond a five-star movie so i don't know elena what about you similarly enthusiastic I'm maybe slightly less enthusiastic, but by those metrics, because I do agree that Fallout is more than five stars. So I don't really know how to rate this one. <laughs> 4.5, 4. 4.8, I don't know. Uh, I would say anticipation, yeah, was like five, enjoyment five, and then maybe introspect maybe four. But then just as a side note, I do want to see it again, like next week or something, like really soon. Uh, because I, I went to see it in IMAX, which is great. I love, you know, the IMAX experience. It's great. BFI IMAX. But then I found out that the film was shot with IMAX cameras, but never actually goes in the full IMAX frame. It never, ever does it. So I don't know why. Doesn't matter. Whatever. But then I was, because I had, I was under the impression that it was a, one of the IMAX films. And I know that, um, uh, Tom Cruise has been upset because, you know, uh, in a few days, all the IMAX screens are going to be taken up by uh, Oppenheimer. I don't know if Barbie's showing in IMAX, maybe in some places. And actually, I just, I'm just here to say, like, guys, you don't need to worry about seeing Mission Impossible in IMAX because it actually does not make a difference. So you should just go see it anyway in any screen. It doesn't matter if it's not IMAX. Uh, you're not going to actually lose the image, which I think is actually quite smart uh, considering the whole Oppenheimer thing. And I'm actually looking forward to seeing it in a less insanely huge, overwhelming screen just to get more of a sense of the compositions and stuff. And and maybe I will find the image slightly less ugly on a small screen. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, definitely see it on the big, big screen. But and try the IMAX if you can, but if you can't, like that's not a big deal. Don't don't just wait to see the Blu-ray or whatever. Like still, people should see it absolutely in the cinema. Um, especially, I, I actually think the sound design in the film is incredible. So yeah, I had a great time, and I will have another a great time again when I see it again very soon. Yeah, for 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 a long movie, I gotta say, I just walked out being like, this will not be the only time I see this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly, it was like almost my first thing I said. I was like, when do we can we do this again? Like, you know, we should move on to a slightly smaller property. It's squaring the circle. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Storm Thorgerson and Aubrey Poe Powell formed the iconic album art design studio Hypnosis and became rock royalty during the 1970s. They created some of the most memorable album covers of all time, including Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Before we get into the documentary about them, Michael Leader spoke to its director, Anton Corbin. Anton Corbin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, congratulations. It's so great to see this film after reading about it on its festival run. And particularly because I've been following your work, you know, it's impossible to be a music fan and a fan of the crossover between music and film and not know your work deeply as a photographer, cover artist, visual artist, music video director, filmmaker. Am I right in thinking this is the first sort of talking heads type documentary you've done? Yes, it really is. Uh, you know, I'm not a natural filmmaker, nor am I a natural documentary maker, I think. But it's the subject matter that, that persuaded me to join. You know? And uh, I really enjoyed doing it, but I ever do another one. <laughs> but this, this experience was nice. What was it about the, the, the subject matter then, in, in particular hypnosis, that... Um, that brought you on board. I think when I, you know, grew up in the in the seventies, I uh, well, I was of an age that was I was interested in buying records. Um, hypnosis sleeves all around. You know, they you couldn't avoid them <laughs> if you tried. So I was familiar with hypnosis in that sense. Never met the guys, but then Poe, um, Aubrey Poe, he um, he's still alive, and he came to Amsterdam to meet me and um, basically persuaded me to direct this documentary. Yeah, he's you know he's he's a I always call him a very good salesman. He's a persuasive man and um, great storyteller. So it was so helpful for the for the documentary that he's um, an entertaining storyteller. And um, you know I don't know some stories are probably less true than others, but um, it's fun. You know, and I I think the English usually don't let a good story stand in the way of the truth or the truth stand in the way of a good story. I mean, yeah. whereas the Dutch do. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I, I I like to cite on the English. And, and this documentary is full of so many great stories. You're looking be behind the scenes of so many iconic album covers. Were you aware of many of these stories? Were any of them that surprised you? Well, there's books on hypnosis now, so I, I, I knew some of the stories, of course. But I was personally very interested in how they technically made some of the album sleeves. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, so to hear the stories about the Peter Gable sleeves, where mm -hmm. you think it's just pretty straightforward pictures, but they all they always did something to it. it was great. And um, the story for animals, the story of House of the Holy, you know, how all these things came about, you know, usually through, you know, accidental in a way, that where um, the, the original plan didn't, really work out and then they came up with something else yeah the peter gabriel ones in particular those ones which that you think are just photography but then there are little elements of you know, graphic design in there i loved an album i have that's the the original soundtrack the 10 cc album which is oh, yeah just, oh, that's beautiful yeah that's yeah. a beautiful one it's an entirely illustrated piece almost because they were so eclectic in what they did as a, yeah as so a, they yeah. they were basically like unlike myself they are design studio so they come up with an idea and then they get the best person to execute it. And in the, in the, the case of, um, 
uh, original soundtrack by 10cc they got uh, uh, Humphrey Ocean to uh, make a drawing which is so beautiful mm. and he's a very funny character to tell the story actually Humphrey Absolutely, yeah. And you have Peter Saville in this documentary, and that's almost he's he talks about how he's almost the generation after, or there is crossover. And I suppose you're part of that generation as well. So when you were moving into that direction as shooting covers and everything, what 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 did hypnosis represent to you at that time? Was it the sense of the old guard, the new guard, or a bit more fluid than that? I think, you know, I'm I'm much more post punk, you know, and and that's why I wanted Peter in there because I love Peter's work. And he actually designed my first photography book uh, in the late 80s. So um, I wanted that, that older voice in there. You know, that, was, that could be slightly critical of the hypnosis era. And at the same time, I compare um, Unknown Pleasures to uh, Dark Side of the Moon in terms of graphically. Uh, so, yeah, you know, the, nobody exists in a vacuum, I guess. Absolutely. So what is it that inspired you about hypnosis? You said that you were interested in looking at how they made these covers and um, the, the surprise and how they would maybe have to change on the fly. But what was yeah. it that you, you drew from? What, what the, the, the interested you? Well, in? I think the analog era is really interesting to me. You know, now everything is possible technically on um, on, the, on the computer. But if you um, had to take a, make an album sleeve in the 70s, that was not the case. So you had to basically do things in front of camera or you had to be very clever with a little knife and some glue and and uh, and put things together afterwards but it was with the hand you know you you do it for real it's not a machine and i very much um lean towards that i'm I'm very hands-on kind of guy when i photograph and even with filmmaking and um yeah i i I like people who do things for real and there's of course hypnosis used every trick in the book at the time that they they could get their hands on. But they still had a photograph of a man on fire and they really had to put the guy on fire in order to get the results. And, you know, the lengths they went, they went to to get the results is uh, admirable. I suppose that, that um, doing it for real has a few different definitions, really, or executions, whether that is setting a man on fire for the Wish You Were Here cover or if that is taking a statue to... Was it yeah. the Alps for the the Wings album cover, or going out to the, to, yeah. to the Caribbean and to, for a shoot? Yeah, you know, when 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 money is um, not in the way, you can get carried away, I guess, some things. And admittedly, the the sheep story is dead doing. The uh, uh, Wings cover um, with the statue on a on a Swiss mountain is, I think, is Paul's idea. They were not always to blame. <laughs> Do you think when it comes to some very ambitious album cover ideas or photo shoot ideas like that, you really need the artist on side? Because they were very lucky to have the biggest artists of the era trusting their judgment. I, I agree. I, I think you should be the collaboration should be with the artist, not with the record company. I've been long gone if I re- relied on record companies supporting my work. Mm. It has to be with the artist because that's also it motivates you the music or the people to, to go back to the way the film looks for a second of course the actual interview sequences are all shot in black and white which is you know, of course you've, you've shot in very different styles but black and white is one thing that you return to time and again as a trademark what does black and white mean to you as a way of looking at the world and also why do you think that's how you wanted to shoot this film well initially i shot it in color to be honest but then i started to edit and we had all this archival material which went every direction that you don't want it to go to in terms of aesthetically. And, and one way to bring it all sort of together was to go black and white and then have the album sleeves be in color as that would be the, the highlights of your life when you had these album sleeves at, at your home. So that's how that came 
came about. And black and white, you know, from when I just started doing my first pictures, the the only magazines I could actually hope to be to publish in were black and white magazines. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the only way I could print my own pictures was if I did it in black and white. Color was too complex for me at that age, and still is. So out of necessity, I, I started in black and white as a photographer. And then later it became uh, my choice because I, I really liked yeah, the aesthetics of black and white. And I felt at home with it and I felt I could express myself better. And there's, there's an element of um, intentionality, isn't it? So it's almost like the black and white films of the 1950s or 60s when you know they're choosing to shoot that way. It's an aesthetic choice rather than a necessity. Yes, ex- absolutely. Even my first movie, Control, uh, I wanted to make it in black and white uh, from the start, from the get-go. We had to film it in color in the end because the black and white films that were available to us were so grainy and the grain moved constantly. But that's all you saw. Whereas I love grain, but not when it moves. So uh, we shot in color and transferred it to black and white, but knowing it was going to be black and white. So we made choices in terms of colors and rooms and stuff to to work out in black and white. Yeah, Control was a very important film for me. I, I was a late teenager at that time and I grew up in Manchester, I was almost idolizing that era and seeing it realized in that way with that interiority, that focus, not just on the band, but also on Deborah Curtis and the people around the band as well was really important to me. Um, as a filmmaker then, I suppose uh, this question is, um, you were already so well established as a photographer, as a music video director as well. And then quite far into your career, the opportunity to make a feature film arose. Was that a surprise or were you hoping one day to become a feature filmmaker as well? No, I was hoping to stay very clear of everything that involves a lot of people. I'm by nature quite shy and I couldn't see myself be at the head of a large group of people. Uh, on top of that, I, I'm totally unfamiliar with the film world. I, I haven't seen many movies. But my videos had storylines in them usually that I wrote myself and then uh, instead of, say, uh, performance videos. So a lot of my friends said, oh, you should be making movies. And I was the one that said, no, no. But I kept uh, receiving scripts from people. And every time I thought, well, there's, there's so many more directors out there that can make a proper movie out of this, but I'm not one of them. Until the Ian Curtis story came around. Because I had met Ian and I, one of the main reasons for me to move to England was to be closer to where this music came from, from Joy Division. So I had a very strong emotional connection to the story. And I felt that was maybe a good basis to say yes to this particular story. And so if I make one film in my life, this might be it. Um, not thinking I'm going to start a movie career now. You know. This might be a cheeky question. Are there any of those scripts that were made eventually that you can remember that you were offered? Yeah, quite a few. Come around. Now I forget, but sometimes I read uh, a synopsis of a movie that's out and it, hang on. I've read that. (laughs) What could have been? Anton Corbett, thank you so much for speaking with me today. It's been a pleasure. Michael, likewise. Be well. So, Elena, I mean, I was kind of familiar with a lot of these album arts work, but I had no idea that it was being done by the same group of people. I mean, were you at all familiar with these two? I was not, actually. I did not know about this creative duo, like this studio uh, at all. But obviously, I, I, I did know a lot about the, the albums, because <laughs> uh, especially Led Zeppelin. I'm like a huge, huge Led Zeppelin fan. I'm sure that's come up in this podcast before. And yeah, it was, um, you know, that's why I decided to watch the film in, in, in the first place, because I thought, you know, I want to know more about this whole aspect of, of these bands' music, because it's actually a huge part of, you know, their 
enduring power. The music is great, but also I think, you know, the first thing you see when you're maybe a, a really young person who's tr for just starting to learn about music from the very distant past, you are sort of hooked by the album covers and you might know the album covers before you even know the music. Like they're, they're just iconic in that way. And yeah, so I was, it was, I thought the film was pretty, you know, it was kind of like sort of interesting if you don't know anything about them. Like if you don't know anything at all about these album covers, this would be interesting to you because it's kind of like a, a nice short resume of, of what they've done and who they are and how they started and some of the work they've done. But I was actually kind of disappointed because I, I was expecting it to go into a bit more detail about where the ideas came from and also about the actual practicality of making them happen. And the moments in the film that I find most in interesting and inspiring are when they go into the details. There's a whole section that's fascinating and but I'm sure is already quite well known for people who are really into this stuff, but still really interesting to see in the film um, about the making of the cover for the Led Zeppelin album Houses of the Holy. Uh, which uh, I'm sure people are familiar. It's the one with the little children. Uh, it's quite a controversial cover in a way, but it's like little children who are naked and I think they're painted all white and they have weird wigs on and they're like on some stone steps somewhere. And it's it's like an orange cover. It's really, really beautiful and iconic and mysterious. It evokes so well some of the emotions and strange Uh, compelling power of Led Zeppelin for me. And they talk about how they made that that cover happen. And it's fascinating because obviously they didn't have, you know, computers at the time. And so they had to make it all, you know, it was just like collage and like playing with perspective and playing with altering the colors. And, you know, they had to all do it practically with their hands and with their tools. And that's for me, that's really interesting because now with computers, you can do whatever you can imagine. You know, you can just do it in it would probably take five minutes to do this or with ai come on you ask ai to do it yeah. do it in a split second it's like ai is really the villain of this week <laughs> yeah, it's like, i mean there would be none of this stuff with with ai we wouldn't have anything to talk about apart from tortellini yeah, exactly ai cannot make good pasta so far as far as we know and yes yeah, so i was kind of disappointed by the doc because i wanted more of that i wanted more of the actual detail of how did this person daily do this stuff and At the end of the day, the film is more, I think, more about mythologizing these amazing creators. Uh, it does address how um, some they got into these weird, quite negative groove after a while because they got so much money and they just spent it all on partying and, and, and drinking and drugs and then the ideas got less good and then they suddenly just were like accepting contracts for things they didn't like just to get more money. And they're really frank about that and that's nice, but... I still wanted more detail about how they made those incredible covers. Uh, I, I wanted more Noel Gallagher. <laughs> he was. That's an interesting thing to say. He was great. <laughs> he was great. Yeah. Like, he was really frank and like really ready to like have a, not have a fight, but really like discuss things in a really deep mm -hmm. way. And in the end, they kind of use him more as like a sort of comic relief and. I don't know. I thought it would be interesting to have him more like... Because he talks about how his own covers are, like of the cover of... Uh, what's the really famous Oasis album? Uh, what's the story, Morning Glory? Yeah. Yeah. He's like, he actually says in the film, like, oh, the, the reason that cover is shit is because I, I was like hungover or whatever. And I said, yeah, whatever. And I didn't pay attention. And only later I realized oh, I should have paid attention. I should have had like a great studio, like hypnosis to make my cover. And it's nice. You know, it's funny. But like... 
yeah, can we talk about that? Can we talk about, you know, what is the place of covers these days and, and what was it then and, and all that stuff? I, I kind of wanted something more profound than just, oh, they were really smart and took loads of drugs and just did whatever came to mind, you know? Yeah, I think he's he has some kind of interesting framing, at least, um, where he kind of talks about it as being like art that's accessible to the working class. Mm. But yeah, beyond that, I, I've had a, I thought it was perfectly interesting, but... Yeah, it was kind of surface level. I don't know, but like I just because I don't know. I'm sure like it, it's just for me like these covers are really they're not important, but like they're really fascinating and they're like a world I don't know and and I want to know how they made them. I want to know exactly, you know, why would you do this version and not this version? Like what was the thought process? And I know a lot of it's just art making, so there it's not like you know they they can like write it down for you. It's just taste, but. It's nice to see like Jimmy Page talk on camera. Like they managed to get him to talk, which I don't think is easy. Uh, and and like loads of other cool like rock stars to, to talk about what these covers meant. There's one section of the film that's really fascinating about Pink Floyd because they all started with Pink Floyd, and they talk about how sort of like was it more is Pink Floyd more about the music or about the image? Like what is the actual main thing about Pink Floyd these days? And even at the time, that's what's really interesting for me is that I didn't realize that even when those albums came out, it was almost more about the design but about the music. Like that was also, it was all, a, it's almost like there was all a, like a big crew, like a whole marketing crew. It was like, the music is weird, but have you seen the covers? Like that's what catches people's attention. And for me, I thought that when, you know, when you think about this way, about history, you're like, oh yeah, this happened and people thought it was normal then. But now we look back, we're like, whoa, that's crazy. But actually, even at the time, people were like, wow, this is, this is wild. This is so original. And yeah, the, the, I like the frank frankness of admitting that, yeah, even from the start, Pink Floyd were really good at marketing themselves. <laughs> it was not never, it's never just the music isolated from anything else. You know, it's all a whole thing together. And I thought that was quite interesting. But yeah. Yeah, qu quite interesting is probably how I'd sum this up. <laughs> so what are your scores for this? Um, I would say anticipation, I don't like four, enjoyment free and introspect free because it's it's not like terrible or anything it's just i was expecting a little bit more but um i just i wished it had gone deeper but still quite interesting and nice to to hear those music even though i would never it's interesting because some of these artists i would never put them in the same category like i i actually think you know i can't remember exactly which ones but like for me led zeppelin is so incredible and then some of the other artists mentioned i'm like hmm and I'm like, why are you discussing them at the same time? This is this is sacrilegious. You cannot do this. Take them seriously, you know. But that would don't take like a ten hour documentary or whatever, you know. It's fine. I, I'm at peace with that. I'm, I'm probably about threes across the board. I found it like perfectly interesting. Lots of stuff that I didn't know at all, or even kind of have any sense of like the practicalities about. So yeah, I mean, worth a little check out. I mean, Al, you haven't seen it, but like, have, have we kind of enticed you into like wanting to have a look? Yeah, unfortunately, because of a, a screener faux pas, um, I wasn't able to see this film. I really am quite intrigued by it because, well, especially given like today in the age of Spotify, where you're seeing a, an album artwork as a tiny little thumbnail, it's not really that big kind of tangible thing you can hold in your hands. People also aren't kind of going out and picking up yeah, it used to be that people used to kind of like judge a book by its cover. People used to buy records based on just artwork, grabbing them and give it a go. That's obviously something that doesn't happen anymore. So I was really intrigued in this documentary as kind of like, yeah, maybe having some of that historical context that it sounds like is maybe a little bit missing. And yeah, sort of looking at how and why 
album artwork used to be important. I definitely am going to see it. I'm really intrigued by it. In lieu of being able to review this, I'll give you a brief review for a YouTube clip in which an Oasis DVD where it's like all the music videos. Noel Gallagher, he gives an audio commentary to all of these videos and he is just... It's one of the funniest things. I'm not even going to attempt to explain how funny it is, but it's just Noel Gallagher going off on one about how he was so drunk this day. Look at that fucking idiot. He's an idiot. It's really, it's really just great. So that gets, uh, in lieu of being able to give this a score, that film, that cinematic masterpiece gets again (laughs) fives across the board for me. <laughs> How can you follow that? And like, is, that is exactly what I'm doing the second we finish this recording. But yeah, we should move on to Film Club. It's Tom Cruise again in The Color of Money. Pool hustler Fast Eddie Felsen finds a young, promising pool player Vincent in a local bar and sees in him a younger version of himself. So Eddie offers to teach Vincent how to be a hustler. Ow, we've got young Tom Cruise, like a no mean feat, kind of going toe to toe with the legendary Paul Newman. Uh, do you think he manages to kind of hold his own? Yeah, I do. It was fun to revisit this. I haven't seen it in so many years. So um, yeah, it was good to go back to, it's not like elite level Scorsese, which is fine because like mid tier Scorsese is better than most people's, you know, top tier. Um, what was really interesting to me about it, I think just coming off the back of Mission, was um, it kind of made me remember that Cruz used to make these films. Like the last 15 years or so, he has been working with Macquarie and with like pretty exclusively with directors whose authority on the movie is kind of, it's only ever equal to his or it's sometimes almost in service of his vision of what the movie should be. You know, Cruz is kind of like an auteur who practically co-directs a lot of these movies that he's in these days and just in terms of the vision for it like certainly from speaking to Macquarie for you know our episode of Script Apart you get the real sense he's so involved in every detail of it that yeah the storytelling the composition everything is kind of through his eye for what would make a great blockbuster watching this made me realize and kind of obviously being aware that it's like a Scorsese collaboration it made me remember that oh yeah he did he did do this like he did he has he did vanilla sky with cameron crowe he obviously did uh minority report and god what's the other a uh, war of the worlds with spielberg yeah so yeah but but since that kind of mid noughties period where he was doing stuff with spielberg he hasn't really worked with a big director whose whose vision is so complete for the film that he has to kind of be subservient to that like the, the way he works now is kind of almost yeah, it's a different dynamic. So yeah, it was really interesting to go back and to, it made me kind of wonder whether like that's something I kind of, I don't think it is, but like the kind of thought process I went down was like, do I wish that for Tom? Like, do I, would I, would I love like a, a slight return maybe when he's done with these mission movies to a type of filmmaking where he's flexing more of that muscle that we talked about in Dead Reckoning Part 1, where it's a little bit more emotional. Um, Would I like to see him partnering with kind of big capital F filmmakers and uh, being in the Oscar conversation again and things like that? So yeah, that was just the thought that occurred to me. Uh, A little, yeah, sort of rabbit hole my brain went down while, um, while watching this film. On the whole, really enjoyed it. Good, good sports drama and yeah i haven't watched the i haven't watched the prequel the this is a sequel of sorts i haven't seen the hustler have you guys Mm -hmm. seen the hustler 
No, I still haven't. Um, it's on my list, obviously. But yeah, I mean, the, I think there's like a 25-year gap between um, The Hustler and this. And, you know, obviously it's not Scorsese on, on that one. Yeah. And I, I don't feel like it's required viewing at all. It doesn't, there isn't like a real sense of like you had to come to it with like a full backstory for Newman's character. What about you, Elena? I mean, you haven't seen The Hustler, but had you seen The Color of Money before? Um, I had seen it before and actually uh, rewatched it like a month ago at the Prince Charles on the print. Um, and it was just so good. I, th- I really recommend watching that film in a cinema with an audience because it's so, it's generally one of the most gripping films. I don't know, like you just, even though it's like, you know, a drama, like you get just you just find yourself like so hoping and like sort of engaged with everything that it's doing. And it's all like sort of Paul Newman is trying to like model this young man and just, he just tells him what to do to, to make the most money. And this guy just keeps not doing what he says. And, and you yourself find yourself being frustrated, like, oh, why? And stuff. And, and and that's where the magic happens, like this sort of struggle. I, I genuinely think it's so wonderful. It's not, I, I guess it's not really top tier Scorsese in the sense that it's not, it, it's so much more self-contained and it's not like maybe less existential and, and big than some of his other films. But for me, I still found like that it does, does the thing where it builds where the last 30 or the last 30 minutes are so amazing that you just find yourself like you, you, you're, you're scared to blink because you're just having such an amazing time. But yeah, in terms of Tom Cruise, I just find find it the film is really like quite bittersweet and sad because it's about a man who um, realizes that he has spent his entire life hustling and you know acting and pretending and pretending to be a charming man and, you know, trying to get people's money in that way. And then finds out that it really sucks when you're on the other end of that um, and that maybe he shouldn't have done this and and uh, he's just going to find himself all alone and, and it's really, really, really sucks. And also that he's aging and he can't do that anymore and now he's become a victim of basically scammers. But I think something that makes it even more bittersweet now is the fact that in that film, Tom Cruise plays like the embodiment of like raw, unrehearsed charm, someone who's like not trying to act, not trying to impress anyone who's just being himself. And that is so like not what he is now. Like he's so controlled and self micromanaged. Like he, he controls everything he does on his face. Uh, he probably tells people like where to put the camera, uh, which fa- which angle of his face people should look at. He's, he doesn't ever seem like he's true self can ever come through he's never not acting never not rehearsing you know he's always just like doing a performance i don't know if you've seen those videos where journalists ask him like recently like oh uh, which film are you going to see first barbie or Oppenheimer? and even that he cannot answer he cannot tell you he cannot give you a straight answer because he knows he's not here to give his real opinion he's here to be the champion of cinema and he doesn't want to like put one film before the other so he just ends up like talking in circles for like five minutes for for nothing for this tiny question like he cannot let it go and the fact that he once was seen as maybe someone who could play Someone who's so relaxed and doesn't act and cannot pretend is just so like bittersweet. And but that makes me think that maybe if they remake The Color of Money or make another sequel, he should play the Paul Newman role this time because he is the color of Bitcoin. <laughs> exactly. He could totally do that. Yeah, he could totally do it because now he has become this uh, actor, you know, who charms his way through through life, but he's getting older and everybody can see through his act and he's clearly not natural. And it's really sad, uh, but I think, yeah, I'm sure he's, I'm sure people have told him that already. I'm sure he's, I'm not the first to have this idea. Like it's, it just seems really obvious when you watch the film, like, come on, do it. This is you now, you should do it. 
but yeah, I thought it was so good. Um, and the film's like keeps it has all these like mad uh, traveling shots where the camera like goes into people's faces right now. And I, I actually was wondering like, oh, did they, did he ever like hate the actor because it goes so fast? And it's so like so. And and I think that's it's like a visual style that's so in line with the characters because he's a flamboyant type of guy. You know, he's like showing off and he's got wearing very nice clothes and he impresses people when he enters a room that's who he is and that's what the film looks like but actually the film is way deeper than that and yeah i i love it so much it's wonderful it's a perfect movie so yeah we've got a lot of perfect movies <laughs> we had five for this peter we're apparently entirely perfect filmography another perfect movie exactly i mean it's true i i there are not that many perfect movies but somehow we're talking about many of them today yes pay your writers and we'll get more perfect movies please exactly. president of hollywood if you're listening exactly but we should move on to our final bit of the podcast where you guys are going to give us some non-movie recommendations Elena, what's your non-movie recommendation? So there's actually a podcast that I really like. I know it's, I'm on a podcast recommending another podcast, but I don't think there's any competition because it's not about the same thing at all. Um, it's a it's called If Books Could Kill. <gasps> I love that one. It's so good. It's like um, two people who are extremely smart who talk about airport bestsellers, but it's specifically you know non-fiction bestsellers like uh, basically self-help books and books about history and books about society and economics and and how to make money and how to be happy and whatever and it's fascinating because basically most well so far all of the books discussed are basically stupid and like you know just just people just either they have a terrible idea that they're elaborating on and it quickly gets really racist and like eugenist or something like that and just like really alarming uh and turns out obviously the book was really influential on actual politicians with actual power or it has like one sort of good idea but then it applies it in situations that do not that way it doesn't work uh and it just keeps saying the same stuff over and over over like several hundred pages um and yeah it's just really nice because it's like these are books you've heard of uh that you know of but you would never read <laughs> because they look terrible or like you don't have time or whatever and then this podcast kind of helps you like understand what what the deal is with these books why they're so famous what what their impact was the context where they came out and also what their ideas are so that you do not have to read them <laughs> uh, and you can still talk about them and their ideas and uh and it's also really funny it has to be said it's like a really funny podcast to listen to because it's so outrageous the stuff that's said often it's books from like the 80s 90s so particularly problematic era especially in terms of like feminism and and uh you know if they did one episode on men are from mars women are from venus and you're like well that's the title alone is already quite quite uh, you know a uh, gender essentialist um and yeah it's just really fun to listen to and uh yeah it sort of gets your brain working but you know not about movies about something else i listened to the episode on uh, the rules which was actually something i was kind of hyper aware of when i was younger of like this is how you land a man and it's not only like the worst advice imaginable, but like I was crying laughing. <laughs> it's all about kind of like the way you do it is you must never be yourself, no matter how long you are with this person. <laughs> Just if he texts you, do not text back. 
if you if he calls you, do not stay on the call for more than ten minutes. Do not look desperate. Do not say what you want. Do not like. It's just amazing. And if, despite you rejecting him for many many months, has not worked, if he's still stalking you, that's when you win. <laughs> exactly. And and there was actually a section in that episode that was sort of fascinating. But maybe one of the worst books I think they discussed, where it was like, don't worry, you can be your true self later. And then later on in the book, they're like. You never, you can never stop doing this. You have to keep doing it, or you will lose your man. <laughs> My favorite bit of advice was it was just like, oh well, you know, you've got to learn to compromise. So if he likes horror movies and you like comedy movies, maybe you like horror movies. <laughs> I'm like that's not a compromise. <laughs> exactly. It's just really, really bleak and funny. Um, Al, what about you? So this isn't particularly current, but um, I. I'm currently listening to the audiobook, having previously read the book, Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory. And it's by um, it's by Raphael Bob Waxberg, who's the guy who wrote Bojack Horseman. I absolutely adored Bojack. And when he brought out this kind of anthology of short stories, I, yeah, wasn't sure. You, you never know how someone's genius is going to sort of port to different mediums. Like, they're a great amazing kind of televisual writers who when they've written novels or things like that it hasn't necessarily been quite to the same heights of brilliance but um this is such a wonderful collection of short stories and um I, yeah it was about two years ago i suppose that i first read it and so many of the stories which are really fantastical and funny in that bojack way but also kind of have that ability to hit you directly in your emotions you know kind of you feel like a pinata being smacked you know uh emotionally that that kind of feeling that um bojack achieves it translates directly to his prose and um yeah it's a wonderful book and so many of these stories have continued to percolate in my brain since i first read it two years ago that um yeah i kind of decided that i wanted to read listen to the audiobook because I just wanted to re- revisit those, some of those stories and was aware that a lot of the BoJack Horseman voice cast have read the stories in the audio version. So, yeah, that's what I've been up to at the moment uh, in terms of my, my non-movie watching media consumption. Oh, that sounds great. I mean, you've inspired me. I'm downloading that straight away because I've actually got a long car drive ahead. But uh, BoJack <laughs> uh, rewatch, I think, probably do. It's got to be done, yeah. I would say, I, I think I, it's ho- I don't know whether it classifies as a rewatch if you are just constantly watching it it's like you can't say you're going to have another cup of coffee if you're plugged into like an intravenous drip of coffee at all times that's my relationship with bojack i kind of fall asleep to it so i'm in a perpetual state of of enjoying bojack and um yeah but uh i'm going to try and give it a break so i can then come back and have a proper rewatch completely afresh I think it's important that you do that because it's very sad. <laughs> yeah, they lure you in with that fun horse-looking fella and then all of a sudden you're a broken person. But yeah, if uh, you've got thoughts on these films, you can email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, it's finally the week we've all been looking forward to. Nolan versus Gerwig, historical atrocity versus existential whimsy, Oppenheimer versus Barbie. So we've got something very special in store to mark the occasion. We couldn't pick between them, so we're going to be doing two podcasts, one devoted to each. For Oppenheimer, Killian Murphy talked to me about playing America's Prometheus. And for our Barbie episode, Hannah Strong met director Greta Gerwig herself. 
Thanks very much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies was hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Al Horner and Evelina Lazek. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.